Our New Testament reading is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray again together. God, our gracious Father, we're so grateful that you have called us to yourself and that without price, you give to us the riches of your grace. We thank you that you are an ever-giving God. And we come now as needy people, hungry people, desiring more of you. And we pray for the gracious acting of your Holy Spirit upon the Word today, that it might find its way into our hearts. We bow before its authority. We bow before its truth. We pray, have your way, O Lord. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've looked at our website recently, you've noticed that I've described the book of Ephesians, which we're about to embark upon, in the words of that Puritan Thomas Goodwin, as the book that conveys more of the mysteries of Christ, and as the place where Paul offers more cordials for the inward man than he does in any other book. Ephesians has been called God's, uh, Paul's crown. It's been called the quintessence of Paul's thought. It has been called Paul's great rhapsody. And from the opening chapter today alone, it's not hard to see why so many theologians and so many commentators have been so taken with the book and have given it such a high appraisal. The first chapter is high voltage. It's dense. It's weighty, it's exhilarating stuff, and it packs a wallop in such a short space. 
And Paul manages to squeeze an awful lot of stuff here in these 14 verses that Tim read for us this morning. He covers the topics of election, predestination, adoption, sin, grace, redemption, forgiveness, the divine wisdom, the inscrutability of God's will, the eschatological consummation of all things in Christ, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and our hope and glory. And what an introduction. It's like a theological avalanche. You can imagine the recipients of this letter. It's likely that this letter was actually an, uh, an encyclical. It was a circular letter meant to go to a number of churches, not just the church at Ephesus. You can imagine these guys going about their day-to-day -day routine and their mundane lives, and they get this scroll in the mail. And they open it up, and this, this incredible this incredible cascade of rushing, bracing, exhilarating Pauline theology washes them out into the sea of divine and spiritual things. Man, they'd say, Paul, this guy's serious. This guy doesn't waste any time. He gets right to it. And the depth and the weightiness of the opening chapter today presents a certain problem to me as a preacher. I mean, there's so much here. How do I go about it? How do I do it? And the merits of expositional preaching notwithstanding, I can imagine Paul thinking any man was entirely daft to try and cover all of his material in one sermon. I'm not convinced that, how, that how, that's how preaching should work. And so what we're going to do today and the weeks to come is to set up our tent here in Ephesians 1 for a bit as we work our way prayerfully and thoughtfully through all of this, this high and majestic material. And so today I'm going to cover verses 1 to 6. And next week we're going to ponder verses 7 to 10. The following week after that we'll look at verses 11 to 14. And then, you know, the Lord is still not returned. We'll consider that majestic prayer in verses 15 to 23. I want to steep in Paul. I want to soak in these things. And my prayer for us, and as I pray for you, Throughout the week, I pray that, that Paul's prayer would come true and that the eyes of our understanding would be opened to the glorious calling in Christ Jesus. Well, let's look then at, at uh, verses uh, 1 to 6. And if you have your Bible with you, keep it open on your, on your lap. Let's look at these opening verses. Paul begins in chapter 1 with this encomium. He begins with this praise towards God on account of the spiritual treasure we've received in Christ. He begins with this vaulting praise. And he begins, although with an unseen premise, by differentiating types of goodness. There's the goodness of the physical, which is evident to most people. This is his unseen premise. The blessings of food and drink. The blessings of bodies and physical pleasures. The blessings of nature and beauty, and none of these things are discredited by the gospel, but they are put in their place. When Paul says that the blessing with which we are to be preoccupied is the blessing that is spiritual, it is the invisible, non-material reality which is only apparent to us by the sense of faith. These blessings, these spiritual blessings, says Paul, are the main thing. 
They are the chief good in life. And even though God blesses us with material blessings, which He does, we see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is the author of all of our physical blessings. He gives grain and wine. He gives bread and beer. He gives our nature mirth in our bodies. But even though we enjoy such things in this life, these goods, says Paul here, by, by implication are fleeting. They are ephemeral. They are transitory. And they are entirely subordinate to the spiritual goods that he's outlining for us today. And I've said this many times to you, and it's so important and crucial that I continue to say it at risk of sounding like a broken record, that we are in perpetual danger. All of us are of losing sight of the primary good, of losing sight of the spiritual, which is invisible to our eyes on account of the thick forest of earthly goods that we walk through every day, the things that we can see. It's no small thing to walk through a crowd of sensory delights in this world and without dismissing them, but rather using them to be directed and fixed on the invisible blessing of the kingdom of God. It's no small feat. It's no small thing. And this kind of discipleship has no place for the cowardly. It has no place for the lazy. It has no place for the small-minded. It has no place for the miserly of heart. This kind of discipleship which reckons the goodness of the physical world as a ladder, in Calvin's words, to climb up to the invisible goodness of the kingdom of these spiritual blessings, this calls for the most courageous, the most valiant, the most self-denying, the most large-minded, the most wise and diligent, unflagging and heroic soul that ever was. Do you know how Paul was able to open up with this hymn of praise to God for the spiritual blessings? Do you know how Paul was able to say this? He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, I have to pummel my body, he says. I have to pummel my body and I have to bring it into submission. I'm like a runner in a race, he says, and I've seen the prize. It is an imperishable crown of glory. I see it there. I've seen it with the eyes of faith, and it makes everything in this life seem dim and tawdry in comparison with it. But my earthly nature, my body, it fights against the vision of the spiritual. And I have to exercise self-control to beat it down in order to ensure that my affections are riveted on the imperishable glory ahead of me. And my brothers and sisters, it is an absolute mistake to think that prizing and cherishing and Pursuing these spiritual blessings from Ephesians 1, as Paul outlines for it's a mistake to think that our materially charged and crowded world makes it easy to do so. I mean, if Paul, who had no shortage of hardships, if Paul, who had these labors, 
and imprisonments and beatings and lashings and stonings and shipwrecks. In spite of all these privations, Paul had to add to his own experience this voluntary discipline of his own body in order to long for that which is infinitely better. My brothers and sisters, what are we to do in this entirely relatively comfortable North America? Listen to Paul yearning. Listen to Paul today longing and craving for the blessings that are spiritual. See Paul deliberately denying himself and saying no to the pleasures of the world so that he can hunger and so that he can thirst for the righteousness that comes from God. And I'm not advocating some kind of ungodly asceticism. And I'm certainly lover of Luther that I am and advocating some new monasticism. But I am saying that where Paul here in Ephesians 1 is glorying in the spiritual, it is the product of a very certain valor and courage and effort. And if we want to be where Paul is, we must determine to follow him in his courage, in his valor, in his self-denial. In fact, we must determine to follow Paul. We must determine to imitate him, indeed, even as he commands us to do so. Be ye imitators of me, even as I imitate the Lord Jesus, he says. For Paul... These things, these spiritual blessings that he gives to us, and everything that follows this statement in Ephesians 1 now is the delineation of these blessings. What are these blessings, Paul? They are election, as you read before you. They are adoption. They are forgiveness. They are redemption. They are holiness. They are the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are the hope of eternal glory. These things, Paul says, these are the realities that crowd my heart and mind on a day-to-day basis. And so if we were to go to Paul today and say, Paul, what matters to you? Paul, what do you think about? What do you dream about, Paul? What inspires you, Paul? What motivates you, Paul? Paul, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life, Paul? And amongst all the things that Paul would say to us, he would say this, when I get up and throughout the day and when I lay my head down at night, when I'm going throughout this day before the Lord, I think about this thing. I think about the wonder of this fact that amongst all the peoples of this earth, all of them having rejected the true God and not one of them deserving the goodness of God's salvation, that God amongst all these people has chosen a people for Himself. And He has included me among them. I think about this. God has chosen me. Those words writes the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, He hath chosen us in Him, have bred more controversy than any so few words almost in the whole Bible. And here they are. Plain as day before us, the belonging to God, the adoption into God's family, the outcome of being chosen is by God, we read. He has blessed us 
with all these spiritual blessings, what? Even as He has chosen us in Him. And in an age that loves the idea of the self-made man and loves the idea of the self-made woman in an age that is just intoxicated with the idea of self-determination, Paul's language here is anything but comfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's even painful for some, but it's crucial today to recognize how far Paul goes to detach our involvement from God's choosing us in Christ. And he does this by three, in three ways. First, he points out to us when it was that we were chosen. Two, he points out to us who we were chosen in. And three, he points out the reason that we were chosen in the first place. And so first, let's look at what Paul says. When, we were, cho- when were we chosen, Paul? You were chosen, he writes, before the foundations of the world. My brothers and sisters, before the Lord created the mountains, before He created the lakes and the oceans and all those trees, before He flung the stars into the vast canopy of space, before Adam and Eve rejected the counsel of the Lord, before all these things, before the fall, before the wreck of the human race, God chose every single person that He would unite to His Son to become bearers of the image of His perfection to become burning and shining lights for Him. You see, the point of Paul's language here is that human history had no influence upon God's sovereign choice. Paul emphasizes that the choosing occurs independent of creation. God didn't peer into His crystal ball and didn't look into the world of creation to see who would be virtuous enough to respond to His Gospel and say, aha, I will choose Him. And I will choose her. Because they have chosen me. No. That's not Paul's point here. The choice is entirely dependent on God alone and independent upon creation. And so Martin Luther says, God's will has no why. There is no cause outside the self of God. You did not choose me, our Lord says, but I chose you. And therefore we read in verse 5, it is the purpose of His will, not ours. And therefore we must concede that it is true when the Apostle says salvation depends not upon what? Salvation depends not upon the human will. And it does not depend upon human exertion, but it depends upon the God who has mercy. And He has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. And so the Gospel goes out to all. The Gospel message goes out to all. It's broadcast to all. But the gift of faith is only exercised in the chosen of God. Many are called, my brothers and sisters. Many are called. Few are chosen. Few doctrines so dramatically cut against the pride of man. And believers and unbelievers alike will fume against this notion that God would choose some 
and he would not choose others. But this is human pride, vaulting itself against the notion of the godness of God. For the doctrine of election, the doctrine that God chooses who will be saved, and he hardens those that he wants to harden. This makes us feel very acutely the distinction between God and man. It makes us feel, oh, so uncomfortably aware that he is the creator and we are the creature. God couldn't choose some to salvation and not others, we say. He couldn't do that because I couldn't conceive of myself doing that. I can't even conceive of any virtuous human being choosing to save some and not others. Therefore, God would not do that. And then God's voice comes booming to us through Psalm 50. You thought that I was like you. You thought that I was like you, he says. Who are you? Shasta asked on the lonely road. I am myself comes the voice of the great lion. I am who I am. But sinful man writes the Puritan Gurnall, love to conceive of God in a way that is most suitable to them. My brothers and sisters, hear my voice today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We read again and again in Scriptures, and there is not one person whom the Lord chooses to save who will be forever lost. Lord, Jesus prays, I desire, I desire that those you have given me will be with me in glory. Those you have given me And when were you given to the Lord? When did the Father give you to Christ? My brothers and sisters, you were given to the Lord before the world began. And that leads to our second point. We were chosen, Paul says, in Him. Chosen, writes Paul, in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And so Calvin writes, if we were chosen in Christ then again, it is outside of ourselves. It is not from the sight of our deserving it. It is not because we have merited salvation. It is not because I had more virtue and kind of moral wherewithal to say yes to Jesus when my neighbor so sinfully sinfully rejected Him. No, none of these things. It is not because of these things. It is because the Father has chosen us for His Son. It's so very easy, my brothers and sisters, to construe construe human salvation in terms of humanity being at the center of it all. We can take John 3.16 and we we can say it with great delight. The Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, which is so true in every possible sense, but we can twist it to make humanity the star of the show. But that is not the teaching of Scripture to us today. Even though we are swept up into the salvation of God, even though humanity is swept up into the manifold blessings of God, though we participate in all of this goodness and blessing, the point of creation 
My brothers and sisters, the point of election, the point of salvation is Jesus Christ. He, look at your Bibles, He, verse 6, is the Beloved. He is the One in whom the Father delights. And in the eternal love of the Father to the Son, He has chosen to give His Son a bride, a body, a people that for all ages will live to the praise and the honor of the Son, a people who for all ages will sing the song of the Lamb who was slain. We, my brothers and sisters, were chosen in Christ. We were chosen for Christ. He is the beloved of God in whom we now are part of that love of God between Father and Son. And that leads me to our final point today, why He has chosen us. In verse 6, Paul, why did the Father do these things? To the praise of His glorious grace, Paul says, you have been chosen in Him for the praise of His glorious grace. You see, the best and the noblest thing, the highest thing, the most worthy thing in all the universe is not that we should obtain perfection, but rather it's that our obtaining perfection should lead to the high praises of God. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly for I, we adore Him. Gladly forever, we will sing his praise. I feel, writes Spurgeon, that if I could live a thousand lives, I would live them all for Jesus. He is so worthy. He is so winsomely beautiful. He is so amazing and so glorious. And my brothers and sisters, today we were made for something bigger. We were made for something larger. You were made for something grander than yourself, grander than your career, grander than anything you can think of. We were made for the adoration and the glory of the goodness of another. That is the vision that Paul desires us to have as his church. And being swept up into that, letting go, of all this human-centeredness that our world finds itself in, Paul creates a vision for us, not living for ourselves, but for the glory of Christ. And so let's ask the Lord today in prayer as we close, let's ask the Lord to so move upon our heart with these great thoughts that we too, with Paul, might be swept up into the glory of another. God our Father, we thank You for these these high and mysterious things. We thank You, Lord, that the Word of God comes to us as the Word of God and not the Word of man. We thank You at times that it stumps us. It puzzles us. It leads us, Lord, into um, a sense of our own um, incompetence, O Lord. But You are the Lord. And we receive Your Word today and we thank You that You have chosen us in Christ so that He might receive our high praise and our glory forever and ever. And Father, we pray that our amen to Your Word would sound again. 
and that you would so move on our hearts that we might be swept up into the vision of the glory of your beloved, your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.